Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Maybe, just maybe, we might want to do what every other major country on earth does, guarantee health care to all people as a right, not a privilege. Oh, my God. Did we get attacked for that idea? Oh, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? We're spending now twice as much as the folks 50 miles away from us spend. They manage to currency health care to all of their people. Yeah, I think we can figure out a way to pay for it. And I guess that's something going to be discussing this weekend. All right. But here is my point. We began that so-called radical discussion and three years came and gone. The last two polls that I saw on the issue of health care has 70% of the American people supporting Medicare for all single-payer system. And there are more people in the freshman class in the United States Congress who support Medicare for all than ever before. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Jarvis, who is not only a physician, but the author of a book called The Purple World, Healing the Health or Healing the Harm in American Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Joe. Joe. Can I call you Dr. Joe or Dr. Jarvis? What's your preference? Uh, why don't you just call me Joe? Just Joe? Okay. <laughs> so I want to... Um, so right off the bat, I wanted to ask her, ask you about your opinion on single-payer health care. Is that the answer to healing the harm, or are there possibly other methods? There's no other way. Okay. Single-payer is the way forward. There's nothing else to say about it. <laughs> right, that really, that is the way forward. I, I actually personally do agree with you. I think the profit motive that has sort of creeped into the system, whether it's um, clearly health insurers, uh, private hospitals, like all of those things that didn't used to exist that have just really come in full throttle and the profiteering that is uh, happening is really preventing people from getting good health care for an affordable price. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this, Dr. Jarvis, Joe, when you were um, a practicing physician years ago, I know like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, they were private, they were private um, insurers the way they are now. They were nonprofit organizations. So the mm -hmm. setup was a bit different. How did that change come about? Well, the change actually started earlier than when I was in practice, which was in the 80s and 90s. The change started... At, almost as soon as the as World War II ended mm -hmm. and the employer health benefit tax credit survived the post-war economic changes. Uh, just, to, just to help your audience understand that a little bit more, during the war, there were various measures taken to try to increase the economic output to support the war effort. But there was concern and worry about economic problems such as inflation. And so certain kinds of restrictions such as wage restrictions were imposed. Nonetheless, they needed to recruit people into the workforce who traditionally hadn't been there, including many women. One of the ways they did that was they induced employers to start using a brand new product, which was health insurance, 
as a lure to get more people into the workplace. And in order to give the, the employers a chance to do that, they gave them a huge tax credit for every dollar spent on a health benefit for the employee workforce. Now, all the other restrictions like wage caps, et cetera, that were part of the World War II uh, economic program were lifted at the end of the war, except that one. Hmm. I, I don't really know the history of why that was not relieved, um, but I suspect it had a lot to do with heavy lobbying on behalf of the health insurance industry. I have had conversations with health insurance executives uh, who were around back then in the mm -hmm. 50s, say, trying to figure out what to do with this new opportunity. And it was a huge economic opportunity. Basically, employers were given free opportunities to buy a product that was out there uh, that these insurers wanted to sell. And they started inventing crazy ways, crazy from my perspective, not yeah. theirs, um, <laughs> of, of trying to make as much money as possible. Traditionally, Blue Cross plans, which were the that was, that, that was the plan that was invented in the 30s. That mm -hmm. was the health benefit plan that was invented in the 30s. Blue Cross Blue Shield traditionally had been community rated, which meant that everybody paid the same premium no matter what. So we, the risk was actually shared all across the board. People in the business began to realize that if they experience rated rather than community rated, meaning discovered who was more likely to need health care and charge them more, they began to subdivide the population using the new actuarial science. If they did that, then they could make more money because I actually see. they price out some of the people they didn't want uh, on their health benefit rolls. Uh, and in those who bought the premium anyway, even though it was higher, uh, would provide, they could provide them with a stream of revenue that would guarantee a profit. As that became more and more true, for-profit interests like Aetna and uh, United Healthcare ultimately, but uh, early on it was others already in the insurance business, but not in health insurance, began to creep into the market. And as they did and began increasingly acted like sharks in a shark's tank, yeah. so did Blue Cross. And eventually a, a bunch of Blue Cross plans, which were all state-based because originally health insurance was a state-regulated phenomenon, so you yeah. didn't have a national insurer. Eventually some state programs, Blue Cross programs, were sold uh, as a public asset to private for-profit interests, like Anthem, as an example oh, of that, okay. and, and began dominating that market. Now, that transition big time began happening about the time I was trying to take care of people and realizing it was increasingly difficult for people who had health issues mm -hmm. to get any kind of health insurance. Uh, so that's a long answer to your question, but no, uh, very informative. I appreciate that. Um, what sure. what role did the Nixon uh, Act play? The HMO Act, I think it was 1972. Did that just further this thing along? Sure, they they began taking a a whole new approach, which was also a new profit opportunity uh, by. The HMO idea, which is originally, again, a nonprofit idea where you marry the risk-taking insurance function with the actual care-providing function and try to make something happen for all of the this a large group of employees. This was the Kaiser Health Plan idea. Yeah. They they decided to steal the the good, you know, the good net nature of that, the 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 feeling in the community. Uh, that that was such a great idea and so, so useful to people. They stole that 
and, mm, and name things HMOs that were actually harsher, uh, that were restrictive and not and actually trying to solve people's health problems. They were actually trying to make a profit. And that is essentially the issue with the for-profit motive. It changes the accountability on every way. If you go into a for-profit hospital, you're dealing with an institution whose manager, whose leader has one fiduciary duty and one fiduciary duty only. Mm-hmm. And that is make as much money as possible for uh, the owners of the institution, the, the stakeholders, the, the shareholders. He does not have a fiduciary duty to the patients to provide mm-hmm. the best care possible. That accountability crazy. changes everything mm-hmm. uh, about how we do business in healthcare. It turns a pharmaceutical organization from one that's seeking the best new medications that are needed by the populace, such as us today needing new antibiotics, and instead of meeting that need, seeking for the next big bang buck maker, the the next long-term drug that they can get a whole bunch of people on for the rest of their life. Antibiotics will never be that because they're only Mm -hmm. a two-week old. So we don't have new antibiotics, even though millions and millions and millions of people worldwide are dying from uh, antibiotic-related problems. So Because they're becoming less effective, right? Yeah. Well, that's because bacteria are doing the natural evolution of right. thing. <laughs> they're becoming, becoming resilient. <laughs> yeah, they're becoming resistant to antibiotics. Mm-hmm. That we, we can create new ways of attacking bacteria, but we're just not doing it. No, uh, right. Not because we can't, but because there's not profit in it. That, that's another example of how it attenuates everything. In fact, what I would go on further and argue is market forces have no role to play in healthcare delivery, because none of the prerequisites of a market are part of healthcare delivery. Mm-hmm. A patient is not a buyer. A patient is not a shopper. It's not the kind of person who can beware, as they used to, as they always say in a market, let the buyer beware, caveat yeah. tour. Yeah. That does not apply in healthcare delivery. Patients never know enough to make good decisions. That's they right. they fly, can't figure out what they would need to purchase. That's right. Uh, and many of them are unconscious when they enter the healthcare system. How can they possibly make any decisions? So no. sellers in healthcare are, are not sellers in a market, or at least they shouldn't be, because we have ethical standards. Physicians are supposed to do no harm and put their patients' needs first. In a market, a seller is supposed to make as much money as possible, and that's the only reason they're in the market. That's not the same as a healthcare provider or a healthcare professional. And another thing about markets is when there's an ex, a, a transaction, you know, when a buyer buys something from a seller in a market, in a real market, a true free market, um, nobody else should care what happens in that transaction or if the transaction happens at all. But that's yeah. not true in healthcare delivery. That yeah. tuberculosis patient needs care because the rest of us are at risk until that infectious disease is under control. That mm-hmm. trauma patient needs the right kind of care delivered by the right uh, professionals at the right place in the community so those professionals stay sharp and practice. So when I need that service, they're at their best. Uh, so right. we really do care. It really matters to each of us whether everyone else in the community gets the care they need. That's oh, not yeah. true of a market. And finally, in a, wow. in a market, price determines demand. The lower the price the higher the demand for the product or the service. That is not true of healthcare. No one right. buys an appendectomy because it's on sale. Right. <laughs> That's just not how it works. I don't have That diabetes. might be the greatest line ever. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't have diabetes. I don't need insulin. I don't care if you want to give away insulin. I don't want it. I will not demand it unless, you know, until I become a diabetic that is insulin dependent. Insulin, insulin diabetic, you know, insulin dependent diabetics need insulin. They they don't get it. They die. It's it's as simple as that. That's not a market. They they have no alternatives there. They're over a barrel. Markets don't exist for people over a barrel. You know? Oh, so, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I don't care how high the price goes, they demand their demand doesn't drop. Right. You know, when you take a, a, a car and you raise the price, a certain number of people drop their interest in buying that car. When you take insulin and raise the price, insulin dependent diabetics don't drop their interest in buying it. There's no resilience, you know, there's, there's no inverse price demand relationship in healthcare products and services. It's not a market. We need to stop thinking about it as a market and the for-profit uh, part of markets really, really tar- just undermines everything we try to do in healthcare. Uh, bravo. I agree with you. Uh, you know, the moral arbiter can't be the market. And that's sort of what we've, what we've created with the system that we have in the United States. Um, you brought up for-profit hospitals, which I think is another problematic area. Uh, you know, tenant, I think, is a tenant that's the big one that's publicly traded. Well, there's a few of them at this point. There's a whole bunch of them, Healthcare yeah. Corporation of America, Columbia HCA, et cetera, yeah. And so, you know, because of this idea that they're looking only at the bottom line, I've noticed that things have changed markedly when you go to the hospital. My last trip to the ER, I never even saw a physician. I only saw a, a, a nurse who was a physician practice. There's something in between but more or yeah. less a nurse. And she yeah. took care of me and she did a great job, but I know that her salary is probably a third of what a physician's is. And it didn't change what I was billed um, by the insurance company either. So there's just, it's just gotten so convoluted at this point that it's just tragic that this is what we're dealing with. And yet here we are with both parties, more or less upholding the system and doing nothing to change it. In your opin- opinion, Joe, is there a difference between the Democrats or the Republicans when it comes to uh, the position that they take on a, a program like Medicare for All or any other single-payer system? A quote directly from my book, there's not a dime's worth of difference between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to health care policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a dime's worth. They, they both end up saying and doing the very same thing. Now, they make it look like they're at complete odds with each other. Yeah. But that's that's an effort. That's that's a put on an effort to try to rally bases on either side of the political spectrum so that they can try to win elections and continue to rule us with what the Bible calls force and harshness. Mm. That, that's that's the bottom line of it. There is no difference. Their policies are not different. Mitt Romney's a Republican. The policy he signed into law in Massachusetts is exactly the same yeah. as Barack Obama's policy when he yeah. signed the Affordable Care Act. They true. are identical. That's what they do. That's what they do. You know, and Biden campaigned on, at the very least, looking at a public option, which has obviously disappeared as it did under the Obama administration. They originally had campaigned on that as well. So we're in a never ending cycle where nothing gets fixed. And it seems to me the only presidential candidate that we've seen address this issue is Bernie Sanders. And the Democratic establishment did not want him to be the presidential uh, candidate for their party. So is is it health insurance money that's coming into to the coffers of the DNC? Is it a combination of that with bot Congress uh, folks that want to hold on to their donor funds because they need it for reelection? Like, how deep is the problem? 
Oh, it's incredibly deep. I, I actually looked at the statistics about how much money is spent on political campaigns in the recent cycle mm -hmm. uh, by various industry groups. But it's always been my impression, having seen the data in years past, that the largest uh, source of political money in the United States is the medical industrial complex. Mm. It may, in fact, be so large that virtually all the other sectors of the economy wow. uh, together don't equal how much is spent by by them, both on lobbying, so actually having a presence in every single state legislature and, of course, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., but also the political money that goes to uh, the, both both political parties and all kinds of different candidates who they feel they can rely on right. uh, to, to actually carry their water for them. When you know, As a great example of that, when Obamacare was actually written, the Senate Finance Committee chairman was from Montana, uh, a Democrat, of course, because the Senate was run at the time by the Democrats, just mm -hmm. barely. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Oh, it's Max Baucus. Max Baucus. Right, Max Baucus. That's right. <laughs> he went to San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco. He's from Montana, right? He went to San Francisco for a fundraiser dinner. $25,000 a plate. Who do you suppose was at that fundraiser uh, dinner? I would yeah. say Nancy Pelosi and Obama and Biden. Well, a bunch of people from the medical industrial complex. Oh, well, that too, yes. <laughs> populated populated that, that dinner, those dinner tables. Yeah. Uh, when it came time to actually write the legislation, he got, you know, he owned it on, on the Senate side. And who did he hire? He hired an executive who came right out of the health insurance industry. Mm. She wrote the bill. She made it sure that it was everything that the health insurance industry wanted. That's right. Obama made that deal before he was even sworn into office. Right. You can see a frontline report about Obama's deal. That's the name of the frontline report. He made his deal with the health insurance industry before we, he was even sworn into office the first time. Seven weeks into his presidency, in March of 2009, the new president gathered in one room at one time, friends and potential enemies alike. You're talking about lawmakers, doctors, nurses, hospitals, bringing together lawmakers and interest groups, cabinet officials, members of Congress, the White House team, conferring on how to overhaul health care. I know people are afraid we'll draw the same old lines in the sand and give in to the same entrenched interests and arrive back. Many of these players for years, if not decades, had a record of opposing any sort of health care reform efforts. Rahm Emanuel engineered this strategy. Everyone remembered how special interests had sabotaged the Clinton plan. They want to get people onto the table. They, they don't want this to be, at first at least, a fight against the insurers, a fight against uh, uh, the medical industry. They want the pharmaceutical industry. They want to get buy-in. I'm going to switch gears and get some groups in here. In the Obama's office. advisors had told him that many of the lobbyists in the room were prepared to cut a deal. Karen Ignani is the chief lobbyist for the insurance industry. We entered this year being committed to change, being committed to restructuring, and committed to actually helping to get this done. We hear the American people about what's not working. We've taken that very seriously. You have our commitment to play, to contribute, and to help pass health care reform this year. Good. Thank you. It, it was a done deal. I, I, I still can't believe how many good friends of mine who are loyal, faithful Democrats, and I'm not, I'm not, I didn't, wasn't raised, you know, as a liberal, I was raised as a conservative. Okay. I was a Republican until the Trump nomination yeah. in 2016, when <laughs> I, I felt like the party had left me, so I left the party. But, um, 
those good friends of mine were saying, I'll give Obama a chance. And I kept saying to them, he's already, he's already given the store away. What are you talking about? It's all, it's already a done deal. So yeah, you're exactly right. It's that deep. It is that deep. And it's unfortunate. Um, You know, on the state level here in California, we had a single payer bill, um, AB 1400, that absolutely just got pulled from the floor vote um, at the beginning of this week. Uh, This is the second time this has happened. We had a Senate bill in the state a couple years ago, same procedure. And it seems to me that each time this is done, it's done to protect uh, the assembly people or the senators that are going to vote no on the bill. And I think the reason for that is because the idea of single payer is really popular with voters in the state. Um, Polling has it at like 75% yes. So this is obviously a policy that Californians want and need. And I would say a lot of the small businesses are behind it as well because they can no longer afford the increased uh, premiums that they have to pay to cover their employees. So uh, this was pulled from the floor vote. I think it was done to protect uh, members of the Democratic establishment that did not uh, want it known that they were going to vote no. And that's probably due to donors and what have you. Um, I don't know if you followed this, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, first, I want to say that I, my heart goes out to the people who are rank and file out there who had been working hard to support yeah. this legislation. And I uh, had been contacting members of the legislature, uh, expressing their opinion, doing everything the right way, trying to be represented and have their viewpoint known. My heart goes out to them because I've been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't actually had in Utah, where I live, a single payer bill to support at the legislature. Uh, but I have had a number of measures that were much smaller that I thought were useful that um, I have persuaded members of the legislature to uh, write a bill about and try to present and actually come prepared to provide testimony in support of the bill at a, at a committee hearing, for instance, only to discover right at the start of the committee hearing that the bill had been substantially modified without anyone talking to me. Oh, uh, even though I was the originating force behind with all the people that work with me, the force behind it, we, they didn't even bother to talk to us. They just altered it in a way that made it completely impossible for us to support it. And of course, then the bill went down in flames. Yeah. I, so I get how bad that feels. I understand totally. It happens because the powers that be, the medical industrial complex, has the wherewithal to basically say to any given legislator, you do things our way, you behave yourself uh, according to what we want, or mm-hmm. we can do all kinds of things to you. We can make sure that not a single one of your bills that you dearly love and support, will even get a hearing. We can make sure that it gets bottled up in the rules committee and never sees the light of day. Right, right. They, there's all kinds of ways they can play this game, and those are not apparent <laughs> to those of us who are sitting outside the legislature. Right. So um, my heart goes out to all those people, and my, what I'm saying, what I would say to you is, let's, let's decide right now that we cannot depend on any politician. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a quote from my book. They, they're liars. They say what they think the room that they're in wants to hear. Mm -hmm. They don't actually mean it. So we need to stop believing that they, because they have a D behind their name, or in my case, an R behind their name, that they're somehow sympathetic to what you and I need. They don't understand our experience, or at least they don't care to uh, put that understanding into any kind of legislative practice. I have no patience for them anymore. And I think it's high time that we started playing hardball the way they do which is why I have started a new organization 
uh, with several other people that's called the American Health Security Project. Mm, okay. It, it's an independent expenditure committee, also known as a PAC, mm-hmm. uh, which will have, you know, we, we will have to file the papers eventually with the Federal Elections Commission. Commission. It's intended to be all about making single payer happen with okay. the hardball money in politics that has become the way we do political business in the United States. I'm not, I, I wish Citizens United would go away. I'm not. Oh, you and me both. Yeah, it's a terrible I'm, piece I'm, of legislation. I'm a John McCain Republican, the guy yeah. who wrote McCain-Feingold, you know, who tried mm-hmm. to stop it. Yep, That's yep. what I think should happen. But it didn't happen. And we are in a shark's tank, so we're going to have to start acting like a shark or they're going to eat us time in and time out. That is what that's. So um, the, the website for the, for the project is American health security project.org. I invite okay. your listeners to take a look at it. I will put a link in the bio to the uh, episode so people can come and check it out. And yeah, you're right. This, this is not a right versus left situation. In my opinion, it is a 1% versus everybody else situation. It's, it's uh, the platonomy transcends both parties and you're right. They do sort of um, create narratives that fit each base on each side. And it doesn't really do anything but serve their purpose. And that is um, keeping the money in their coffers and not um, having to give any of it up. And let's be clear, there has been a redistribution of wealth in the country. That redistribution has come from the bottom and it's gone to the top. And it's this money is just sitting there right now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's it's wild to me that we can look at every aspect of the situation you're describing and see that there's tentacles of big business that have bought politicians and control what happens and that none of these folks are listening to their constituents, no matter who those constituents are. That's where we're at. Um, you had mentioned something about, you know, obviously medications, back, uh, antibi- antibiotics, et cetera. But I want to actually take a little bigger look at pharmaceutical companies because I think they are also part of the problem. And not only are they part of the problem, they have created such distrust in the public now that I think that is what at base is um, causing a lot of the anti-vaccine sentiment in the world. If you listen to what the anti-vaxxers are saying, time and time again, is about big pharma, right? So my thing when I talk to these individuals is this, listen, you can, you can have an absolute robust distrust for big pharma, and I'm with you on that. They obviously are politically corrupt. They're obviously greedy. Um, I think a, an obvious example of that is the fact that it's taxpayer dollars that fund a lot of their research, yet they're allowed to hold on to their patents and keep whatever profits there are from that. The, the uh, taxpayers don't get paid back on their investment. Um, that to me is corruption, and we should focus on that. But I think, you know, I think what happens is, is, is that behavior right there gets conflated into all of science. So now every biological um, engineer, researcher, uh, doctor that's involved in the creation of medication, et cetera, is now being tarred and feathered with the same um, antitrust brush. And it's really frustrating for me because vaccine science is sound science. They save lives. This is not up for debate. I don't think there's any big uh, conspiracy out there where everybody involved in the creation of vaccines is out to kill you. But it's that underlying distrust that uh, and the anger towards big pharma that's sort of driving that, in my opinion. Um, what are your thoughts on this? You know, the anti-vax um, bias started happening years ago. Yeah. Uh, I When I was the state health officer for Nevada in the 80s, mm-hmm. 
there was an outbreak of measles in a school in one of the little towns in Nevada. And so uh, we had to take a close look at the vaccine records of the school in order Mm -hmm. to try to quell that outbreak. And what we discovered was a lot of people had simply not vaccinated their children. And Mm -hmm. it turned out a lot of them were just very resistant to the idea of vaccine at all. And if you look in the history of vaccine, beginning with the smallpox vaccine in the 18th century, there were people then. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. so it resisted the idea of introducing anything uh, in the way of a vaccine into their body. So it's okay. there's some kind of natural human, you know, in a, in a minority, a small number of people naturally have an antipathy to the idea of vaccine. Okay. And that's hard to overcome. And then you add to that that there was a physician in Great Britain who published some data. Yeah, totally Andrew bogus. Wakefield. Yeah, totally bogus about how um, autism was related to vaccines. And that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. The, the article was pulled and he was sanctioned for having created um, a bogus uh, article, but it, it got legs and it added to and created. Now, I, I'm not at the, at the same time, I'm not denying what you, your basic thesis is, which is that the betrayal of the American public by the pharmaceutical industry uh, over and over again, for instance, in the recent opioid uh, pandemic. Right. There's another example. Uh, yeah. Basically, what it comes down to is the pharmaceutical industry, like the rest of, uh, of the medical industrial complex, would rather make a sale than actually take care of somebody. And that is a betrayal of our trust in what should be institutions that are devoted to patients. Uh, because as you point out, they get their start, no matter what it is, the basic science knowledge, they get it from public funding. That's mm-hmm. where it all starts. Uh, there, it's a myth that cre- that's per- perpetrated on us over and over again by big pharma and others, that somehow these big dollar profits have to exist or innovation won't occur. Yeah, exactly. That's just it's, wrong. It's just I mean, wrong. The, the most important invention in the history of medicine was penicillin. And the inventor of penicillin got no huge profits That's right. at all from it. He did eventually get the Nobel Prize and deservedly so. But he lived a fairly modest life. Do you think that he was after that information just because he thought he might score big on it? No, it's also yeah. true of the inventors of insulin. They basically invented the process for uh, purifying bovine insulin so it could be used in human populations, proved that it worked. They didn't get a dime of profit out of that. And in fact, they explicitly tried to set up a system so that insulin needing patients from then on would never be uh, kept from from their medication because of cost. They realized that it was important to treat people first and foremost and and the you know vast sums of profits were irrelevant and yeah. not part of the equation. This is what I would consider human nature. We want to do well for our, our brothers and sisters. We want to help. This is part of who we are. Mm-hmm. It's part of our good nature for each other. And the fact that somebody is claiming that the only motivation that moves someone to do something new and different and extraordinary is that they can make a lot of money out of it, that's insulting to me. That is not how people over the history of the medicine have ever acted. It, it isn't true now and it wasn't true then. It's simply their business model and they want to defend it and they've got a lot of money so they can defend it. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I think in a way it's backfiring 
because we're now facing, obviously, a very serious pandemic, and it's sort of being gutted out by this idea. And also, I'd say add to that. Meanwhile, uh, we're not vaccinating poor countries in the global south, and these countries need to be vaccinated too. public health is something that is uh, we're all related in it together. Your decision affects everybody around you. We can't live in isolation. So I feel it's very unfortunate that this is sort of where we're at. And I don't again, this is something I don't see uh, being changed by either party. They both seem to be OK with the system in which they're the pharmaceutical companies are allowed to profiteer. Uh, and, and they're undermining public health. Both parties yeah. are undermining public health and taking away the very professional, ethical leadership that public health traditionally had in the United States. Mm-hmm. It, this, this was my career. And so it's been a real tragedy for me to watch it. Uh, oh, beginning boy, I bet. 30 to 40 years ago when I entered the, you know, as a public health physician, I entered the field and watching how they've dumbed down the enterprise of public health and they've made it increasingly non-viable, both as a a career track and also as a possibility for someone to actually lead out in a community and get a response. Um, Mm -hmm. Both Democrats and Republicans have underfunded public health over many, many decades, leading us bereft of the opportunities to use traditional public health practices that really would have made a difference in this mm-hmm. pandemic. It's, it's an ugly, horrible fact that what really impacts the, the American lives in families and in towns across the country don't matter yeah. to the two parties, to the two major parties. It does not matter. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we are literally facing a a mini 9-11 every day now for almost two weeks, and it's not getting discussed. That is a lot of deaths. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine how laissez-faire they are about what's happening. But here we are. Um, Do you think the, go ahead. Let me, let me tag on to that. There, there is a hidden epidemic that's been ongoing and understood since the 1990s in the United States. And that is patient safety is so poorly looked after because, mm-hmm. again, profit motive gets in the way of actually taking care of a patient. Okay. Um, that the, there are 240,000 deaths, premature deaths every year due to preventable injury of hospitalized oh, patients. In the are United you kidding States. me? I'm not kidding you. That's wow. data that we've known since the 1990s. That number comes from Johns Hopkins. I've heard okay. from the Institute, National Institute of Health, the number is actually more like 400,000. So somewhere in that range, just, just for wow. perspective, the wow. leading cause of death in the United States is heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and that's 600,000 deaths a year. Second leading cause, cancer, all cancers taken together, another almost 600,000 deaths a year. So when we're talking about somewhere between 240 and 400,000 deaths a year. That's the third leading cause of death in this country. And does anyone ever talk about it? No, does I didn't know about that. Anything about it? If, if you transpose the health and safety record of American hospitals onto the American airline industry, a fully loaded aircraft would fall out of the sky, killing all hands on board, uh, you know, more than once a week. Wow. And you know how long that would not get at the public attention? Like the second crash, there would be an outcry. And we know that because recently Boeing was taken to task because exactly that happened. For the second time, you know, in a short period of time, one of their new aircraft fell out of the sky. And so there was an outcry saying, do something. We should be demanding that something be done about patient safety. Mm -hmm. But no, poor quality care is exactly what makes the most money for the medical (laughs) industrial complex. So we get poor quality care 
delivered very inefficiently uh, in order to satisfy their hunger for profits, for windfall profits. That's exactly what's happening. <sighs> wow, that's frustrating. So what is causing this issue? This is um, understaffed hospitals, not uh, enough um, things, supplies needed. Like what are the root causes of that? You take, uh, you, if you're a hospital executive and your fiduciary duty is to your shareholders uh-huh. and you're looking at the bottom line and trying to say, well, we made X amount of money this quarter. How can I beat that in the next quarter? Because, of course, that's the game. Right. Every quarter they need to show some advance in their profitability. And they look at what's the biggest cost that they're facing. Healthcare mm-hmm. is a labor intensive yeah. thing. Yeah. And so what they look at at that, at that huge cost for the labor and they say to themselves, how can we how can we downsize that cost? Well, one way to do it is what used to be an RN's job becomes an LPN's job. And what used to be an LPN's job becomes a medical assistance job. And what used to be a trained medical assistance job becomes somebody's job who's entry and, you know, below minimum wage sort of thing. And what, what eventually happens is who comes to the bedside and I don't mean to might not be trained properly. These are, yeah, these are these are lovely people who are doing their best, but they're being asked to do something they are not prepared to do. Right. I was standing at my wife's bedside in, in a Salt Lake City hospital after she had a major surgery and began she began having a major complication with fluid retention. Uh-huh. And there was a huge question going on among her physicians about whether she had uh some kind of fluid retention related to the surgery itself or whether she had heart failure that was developing. This required a simple, at least one of the things it required was a very simple uh, management of her fluids going in and coming out. This is called eyes and nose, ins and outs. It requires simple mathematicians. You know, you just have to add and subtract. You got to add up how many cc's of fluid went in the IV, how much she drank, how many cc's of urine came out, et cetera. Eyes and nose. The person who came to her bedside to do that did not know how to add and subtract. Okay. Simply could not do an accurate eyes and nose count. I never, I tell all of my friends and, and, and family members, never leave your loved one alone in the hospital. It's the most dangerous thing an American does in his or her lifetime is be admitted wow. to an American home. Never leave them alone. I was at the bedside. I did the eyes and nose so that I knew what was going in and out so that we could try to solve this problem for her. And if I hadn't been there, it wouldn't have been done. Simple as that. That's crazy. Yeah. So they, that sort of speaks to what I was mentioning earlier about my last trip to the ER where I never saw a physician. They're, they're saving that money by not hiring enough adequate trained professionals um, to cover the floors. There's plenty of room in the healthcare system for Mm -hmm. mid-level providers. And you're describing a nurse practitioner, I think. Okay. And there's also physician assistants. They have, they're well-trained, outstanding. We, those, there's plenty of room for them in ERs and a variety of other places, primary care offices, even mm-hmm. specialists have places they can use mid-level providers for. But you're absolutely right. There should be, must be a physician who has charge of that service yeah, uh, and, and, and or mistakes get made. Yeah, or mistakes I mean, get made. I mean, I mean, just I mean, not to get too deeply in the deep in the personal stories here, but um, I am allergic to penicillin. Deeply anaphylactic, anaphylactic shock level uh, allergic, and I was given another um, antibiotic that is apparently in the same sort of family as penicillin. And yeah. even after this guy was told I was allergic to penicillin, he gave it to me anyway, and I went into anaphylactic shock. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> well, yeah, luckily that, I was still cool. at the hospital. <laughs> okay. So there you have it. There you have it right there. That little story that you just told is an illustration 
of why we have so many, the, the 240,000 to 400,000, yeah, right. uh, you know, preventable patient injuries. That was a preventable patient injury. Oh, 100% you, it was, yeah. You didn't end up being a mortality statistic, but, uh, you know, when it's 240,000 deaths a year, th that's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. There's, there's 10 times that many, many uh, actual episodes right. where somebody is left too long at the, yeah. and need, you know, they get up on their own instead of getting a nurse to help them and they fall and fracture Ugh. something. Uh, yeah. They get the surgery on the wrong side. Uh, in your case, they get the wrong medication or they get the wrong dose or they get their neighbors, you know, somebody else's, some other patient's medication. All of these things happen commonly in American hospitals. Why? Because the nurses are way overstretched. The ones who are really trained have far too many patients to be responsible for. Right. The people who have to rely on at the bedside don't have the skills needed to do the jobs that are supposed to do. Right. Why? Because labor is a very huge part of the cost and in order to be as profitable as possible they're cutting their labor costs yeah you That's know and wildly though they would have saved money if they had just done this properly in the first place because now the hospital had i had to be intubated and you know benadryl all of these things that they had to do to bring me out of out of shock cost them money yeah. we didn't you know i didn't end up paying that bill it was their mistake you're, uh, you're making the point that i make in my book oh good and, and it's <laughs> It's a point that a lot of people don't understand because they're thinking about this in market terms. Mm -hmm. In a market, high quality care, high quality things cost more. If you're going to buy a really high quality car, you're going to pay more for it than if you're going to buy a modest, more modest car, you know, that has less right. bells and bells to it. Okay, that's, that's what everybody understands to be the case. And they think that applies in healthcare. Mm, so there is what used to be referred to as the iron triangle in healthcare policy, where you had cost. In one corner, you had quality in another, and the third member of the triangle was access. And the argument was, if you increase access, which is a good thing, you do it at the expense of increasing the cost, which is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. There's no way to solve one thing in that, the high cost problem, for instance, without affecting the quality ne negatively and the access negatively. And that is not true, because right. it is not a market. Healthcare does not act like a market commodity. Right. High quality care doesn't cost more. It costs less. It costs less. And yeah. cost is our major problem, not coverage. Obamacare was all about increasing coverage. That is not the problem in American healthcare. No, cost it's not. The, yeah, I agree. Cost yeah. is the problem. And the reason we have high cost is because, not because we have high quality care, but because we have poor quality care. That's why we have high cost and because we have inefficiently financed care. That's that, those two things combined cost us a trillion dollars in waste, what I call waste. The medical industrial complex calls profit. Yeah, that's, it is waste because that it's is, unnecessary. That is, you get right down to it. So your story is a great, great story. In fact, I'd love it if you would type that story up and send it to me. I'm okay. about to publish a new book and I want to put your story in the book. I'll keep it. All right. Yeah, I will. Yeah, because it's a wild story. Secret. It is a so wild tell story. Me that story. Send okay. it to me. <laughs> I will send you a, a type up of that. And you, you know, you're bringing me to my next point because part of the part of the verbiage that politicians use to keep the system in place is increasing access to care. Their favorite word is to say access, and access to care isn't the problem. You're right; it's the cost of that care. I have mm -hmm. access to buy a Lamborghini. I can't afford it. Right. <laughs> 
Right. It's the cost. It's the and cost. The cost is high. It, the cost is high in the United States in exorbitant ways. It's remarkably high. It's incredibly high. It's I don't know how many more superlative adjectives I can come up with. It's ridiculously high is what it is. And that's because they can set the price at whatever they want, which is wrong. I mean, right. the hospitals come up with these prices that are just pulled out of the air. Right. Ridiculous amounts of money for what? Yeah. Why? Because I mean, they can get some for an part of it. They, you know, and there's this big back, back of the room sort of negotiation that goes on. Patients can never see and understand. The cost is ridiculous in the United States. We already tax ourselves enough in the United States to pay for all medically necessary care for every patient every time they need it without any money out of pocket at the time of service. We already tax ourselves enough. We tax ourselves more than any other nation taxes itself for healthcare. We are the world's leader in healthcare taxes. That's why we have probably three billion dollars in healthcare taxes if you include all the taxes from the federal government down to the state governments to the city, county, and sewer district governments who are paying for the health benefits of their employees and the dependents thereof. All of that money taken together is probably $3 trillion a year, and that still by itself, without any m- private money from out of our pockets or our employers' pockets, that three, $3 trillion would still have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. It's yeah. enough. We don't need to raise any more money by taxes. No, we That's don't. a specious argument. We're already there. We just We're need already to spend there, it. yeah. We, we just need to spend it on high-quality care, which we can do. That's real health system reform, and we also need to spend it on efficiently financed care. Again, mm-hmm. real health reform, because that gores the oxes of the medical industrial complex. And unless they're screaming and crying, real health reform isn't happening. Isn't, yeah, no, it, uh, undoubtedly true. In fact, even the Koch brothers had to admit that Medicare for all is far more economically efficient than what we're doing now. So really, at the end of the day, if, if the moral argument doesn't convince you that Medicare for all is the way to go, then the economic one certainly should, because we do pay far more for uh, our medical care here. And we're not getting the same quality of care as other countries that do have single payer. I don't think that's a, a controversial statement at this point. The, it's been proven so many times, it's ridiculous to yeah. say otherwise. Yes, I agree. I, as I told you, I grew up as a conservative and yeah. I was attracted 30 years ago to single-payer health care for all the reasons that are conservative. It's yeah. fiscally responsible. Right. It's, it's morally correct. It's biblically correct. Most of the hospitals in the country, if not built as a county hospital or some other public mm-hmm. facility, were built by Christian religious That's organizations right. trying, to meet, yep. trying to meet what was the, what the teachings of the Bible yep. ask of us to do, to take care of each other, to visit the sick, even the least of these. So, mm-hmm. and, and finally, it's constitutionally right. If you do it uh, in, in what is evolving, the way we're politically evolving towards, which is through the states. Yeah. Um, now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should have any other goal other than Medicare for all, because everybody needs to be included yeah. in this, every single American. But politically, the way we're going to have to do it is we're going to have to try in California and New York and Washington State, and I'm trying to build a movement in Utah, we're going to have to break through somewhere in the in this nation, and then multiple other states will follow, and eventually everything will happen. And in fact, that was going to be my next question. Do you think we have to go piecemeal state by state to get uh, universal care on the federal level um, versus trying to go right towards a Medicare for all bill? But So you do think it's it's better to go state by state, and that's going to be more effective? 
one of the for me as a as a conservative it it makes the most sense constitutionally i see but okay politically but politically there isn't any other way to do it we mm-hmm. have a president you know he's he's got he's a democrat and he's got two democratic houses in congress and yet he's declared himself unwilling to allow <laughs> We can't even get a hearing for it in Congress. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I don't see any, I, there's no political possibility here. Yeah. I Congress is not, is not, well, Congress is infamously not able to do anything that makes any sense over the <laughs> entire history of the country, much less recently. So I, I, I don't, you know, this isn't unusual. They're just, they're just so totally, uh, I don't know, beside themselves. They're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They never think about what really let's solve a problem for once. No, no, that's not No, no, why do that? (laughs) Why do that? When they can posture in front of the cameras and if their favorite camera is CNN, so be it. If it's Fox, that's what they do. It's it's all political theater at this point. I I don't disagree. Uh, So, you know, Canada, that's the way they eventually had single payer come into Canada. They went province by province and that seemed to be effective there. So I guess, you know, we're going to bring back um, in California. They said they're going to bring back the single payer bill again next January. Maybe there'll be some movement then. I do think that uh, it's going to take a long time to break through all of these barriers that you're talking about, because the big money behind um, stopping single payer is it's big money. It's huge. Um, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen through a ballot initiative. Right. You know, and I asked actually the progressive caucus chair about this, um, because in California, even if we get the assembly to say yes to the bill, then we get the Senate to say yes, the bill goes to the governor's office. It's still going to have to be a ballot initiative that's voted on by the uh, population in California. So I was suggesting that perhaps a way to do that is to go directly to the voters and create um, a proposition. Of course, there's always problems with that, too. It has to have, you know, because the tax aspects, because the Medicare money or the uh, Medicaid money that comes into the state from the federal government gets put into the pool to fund it. So but everything is complicated. I don't think that means we can't figure it out. I think we can. We can. Um, The reason for the American Health Security Project is one of the principal reasons is to support state-based ballot initiatives. I see. Okay. We'll, we will create a political fund that we can use to help whip populations' interest. Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. There is a basic insecurity across the American populace about healthcare. This okay. has been demonstrated in polling year after year after year. The first time it became politically important was in 1991 mm-hmm. when Harris Wofford came out of nowhere in Pennsylvania and won a special election for the U.S. Senate. And he did it because he identified, somehow intuitively identified, that all of the Pennsylvania voters were worried about whether they, could, they and their families could get the care they needed. Right. And so he started talking about it, and he came from 40 points behind over a very short special election campaign season and won that race by 10 points. That's amazing. Against the, against the then sitting United States Attorney General, Dick Thornburg, who had been the the very popular Republican governor of Pennsylvania, you know, just a few years before. This was a guy with a high amount of name recognition with the backing of George Bush the first, who he was whose cabinet he was serving in. Mm-hmm. Everybody expected him to win it and and Harris Wofford realized health insecurity yeah. uh, is what's driving people and they voted for him because yep. well then what happened after that is the Clintons realized uh, when yeah. they ran in 92, they realized that health insecurity was something you could run on. So they started the process of Democrats claiming that as their 
as their but, issue. And they didn't even do that. Betraying it, but oh betraying it when they became, when right. they became office holders. That's and, right. You know, look at the history. Every president, first-termer president since then, has realized to win the presidency the first time, they have to address health and security. So what did George W. Bush do? He ran yeah. on Medicare Part D, which again was a betrayal of, of the actual patient. I'm on Medicare. My wife's on Medicare. I can tell you Medicare Part D is not serving the needs of the Medicare. No, population. I mean, it locks in the pharmaceutical profits. Yeah, part of Part yeah. D was that he made part of that bill that, that the government couldn't negotiate prices for drugs. Exactly. That's insane. Exactly so. And then the next next first term president, Barack Obama, what did yeah, he run same on? Same thing. <laughs> and he betrayed the people again. And Wait, even Donald Dr. Joe, Trump, there's a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, even Donald Trump realized that Indeed. health insecurity was a big deal. And what did he run on? Yep, he ran, he kept thing. saying to his group of people, I will not privatize Medicare. I will not change Medicare. Medicare is yours for life. He said it over and over again. Why did he do that? Because he was being different from any other Republican candidate who all talked about how they were going to fix Medicare, which yeah. meant privatize it in various ways. And he was trying to be different yeah. and say, I'm going to save your Medicare benefit. He That's knew that right. mattered to his, his base. Every single one talks about it. And then, of course, they give the store away once they're in office. You are correct, sir. You are correct. Um, I wanted to talk about a recent report that KFF, which is the Kaiser Fa Foundation for, uh, what? How do they? How would you? Yeah. How would you actually? Let's have a second to talk about that. How would you categorize them? Because it seems to me that they're sort of an arm of of cleaning up the look of Kaiser being a for-profit, horrifying health insurer. Like, I feel like they're trying to do some sort of philanthropy to make themselves look better. Like, I, do you have any feelings on that? Well, there's a lot of this going on in um, healthcare policy circles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of the, the nonprofit organizations like health insurers, former blues that got sold into for into for-profit status yeah. the money that was realized from the sale much of it or some of it was often set aside uh as an endowment for a you I know see. a non-profit health policy center or think tank this is very common kaiser uh, i i've been a kaiser member in my in years past when in various employments that i had over the years mm -hmm. and i'm, I'm not going to criticize them um you know heavily. I'm not going to try to claim that they're the best thing either. Right. Uh, I, I seriously considered for a while working for them, though I never did. Okay. Uh, so there's a, there, there's a, I, I can say there's some good about their okay. original concept of Kaiser and there's some good about how they try to execute on it. And they have spun off in some way, and I'm not sure what the details are about that, this nonprofit think tank called the Kaiser Family Foundation. But okay. most of these nonprofit think tanks have a very heavy medical industrial complex orientation. Yeah. They, they, they tend to not, they tend to skew results. So when you see stuff from Kaiser Family Foundation, you have to realize that maybe they fell short of asking the really hard questions. Yeah. Even if they come <laughs> with something that was, you know, that looks enticing. I just today quoted on my, on my, um, Social well, that's media. what I wanted to ask you about, what you quoted, because I think it's really interesting. Um, basically, it says in regards uh, to adults taking their prescription medications, their report basically says three in 10 adults are not taking prescribed medication due to the cost of the medication, which is absolutely right. frightful. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is frightful. And so when they find that, 
because you know that their background sort of bias would be against saying something critical of the medical yeah. industrial complex, you have to say, wow, wow, that's really impressive. You read through the rest of the article that I linked to, and you'll see that they, you know, there are some things that they sort of try to, again, yeah. Uh, yeah. go back in and backfill and make people feel a little bit better about it. So one of the right. things they said was 69% of people uh, who got a prescription said it was easy to fill it. Yeah. Well, all right. <laughs> All right, you know, the person who is, you know, taking Dr. one Dr. Joe, you are awesome. <laughs> yeah. So one, one, of the, one of the, you know, the person who's taking one medication who happens to get a prescription for, you know, something simple will not have trouble filling that medication. Uh, well, that and, excuses and this whole other problem that we're having about them not being able to afford it. I mean. Right. It's just, it's ludicrous that they, they search for ways of saying things are okay anyway. They're not okay. They are not okay. You know, we, we, we in the United States have a rising asthma death rate. Wow, asthma do we really? Death, we do. We have a rising asthma death rate. That is something that only third world countries are supposed yeah. to have. Asthma is a disease that's rising in incidence all over the world. It's true in the United States, in first world countries. It's true in the third world. Asthma is just a much more common, and it is a mortal disease on, in some of the more severe cases. Mm -hmm. And mortality, therefore, is rising along with the incidence of the disease where there isn't adequate treatment. We have all kinds of wonderful inhaled treatments. I used to be a tertiary care provider at a very high-level hospital for occupational lung disease, and many of my patients were asthmatics. Okay. So I know how to treat asthma. We have developed these wonderful medications. Many of them are inhaled using public dollars, uh, to develop them. And, and those medications will treat virtually every case. We can prevent these deaths is what I'm saying. And yet it's a rising death rate in this country. Why? Cost. Because people, uh, one month's worth of an asthma medication, and I have this in personal experience, $500 a month, even for someone like myself Holy. who has a Medicare plan with Medicare Part D coverage. That's even crazy. for me, $500 a month. Just the fact that I might be able to buy it does not mean that the vast majority of Americans can afford that. Right, right. And if they can't afford their medicine, what do they do? They go without and they, they die. They go without. Well, you know, you hear these stories about uh, diabetics rationing their insulin because they can't afford the insulin. This right. is insane and that this is what's happening. I, I, you know, what's not to applaud about President Biden saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to go after cancer again. We're going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Once again, another moonshot, you know, blah, blah, blah. President Biden, doggone it, why don't you start by making sure every person who has cancer today gets the care they need without having to be bankrupted and without having to worry about whether they can even pay the parking fees at the structure they go to for their, for their infusions. Let's actually get real about this. You cannot cure cancer if people can't get the care they need. God, you know, you're right about the parking fees, too. The last time I was at the hospital, it was like 40 bucks to park. I was like... <laughs> How else can they fleece us? Oh, God, it's just so crazy to me. Um, I want to ask you a question about the Medical Association. Uh, so in the state of California, on our single-payer bill, you had these uh, two dueling um, parties that I think it's sort of a proxy war for what you're describing. So on the one side, you had the California Nurses Association. So this is the union for the nurses. And they yeah. strongly support single-payer. And they've been out there pounding the pavement for it. 
And then on the other side, you had the obviously the for-profit hospital lobby. That's not a shocker, but also the medical association, which is is the physicians group. And I was really surprised by that because I would imagine that a lot more doctors feel the way you do, especially when they have to spend so much time dealing with insurance paperwork as opposed to treating their patients or getting permission even to provide a patient with something that they need. I I'm, was kind of surprised by that. What's the story there? The story is that people like me, physicians like myself, and I was a member of a medical organ, you know, the medical societies for a lot of years. So, and active and participated and tried to argue in favor of single payer. So I know how this works. People like me are frustrated and pretty early and they give up and leave. I don't, I haven't been a member of the American Medical Association for decades okay. because they don't represent what's really true about what patients need. They don't. They represent the financial interests of physicians mm. who make money in a lot of ways that they shouldn't. Okay. Uh, they, they should not be, uh, be able to invest in an MRI machine and refer patients to their own machine and make both the fee of seeing the patient and making the referral and also a fee from having them be examined by their machine and their mm. technician. That's just wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, organized medicine represents those particular physicians who've taken a much more, shall we say, financial look at the practice so. of medicine. And the rest of us have abandoned them and, and have bonded together in other, in other venues. And there are places like Physicians for a National Health Program where doctors can go and uh, you know, learn more about what the issues are and what the facts really are and get the uh, vocabulary to articulate their opposition. Now, having said that, there are increasing numbers of docs who have stayed involved in their professional societies, uh, not just the state medical associations, but, you know, the family practice association and the surgical society, et cetera, and are gradually making progress, eroding away um, this resistance by organized medicine. And in fact, the internal medicine societies have already, already come out in favor of single payer. And you'll see that soon, I think, from psychiatry and from pediatrics, another okay. two groups of, of docs who are clearly um, in favor of single payer. So um, it, it'll, it'll change over time. But the American Medical Association was the reason why Roosevelt and Truman were not able to pass, you know, some kind of nationwide health I program. I didn't know that. Okay. At the same time that the United Kingdom was passing the National Health Service right after the war. They loved themselves more than we loved ourselves yeah. after the war. Yeah. They, they did what they recognized needed to happen right. and created the National Health Service. We wouldn't have had that. That's socialized medicine. And I don't think that'll yeah, ever Yeah, that's what they anymore. called it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we, we, we want publicly funded health care and privately delivered healthcare. That's what we want. That's what Americans want. We already are taxing ourselves enough for the public funding half of it. Now we just need to clearly uh, organize it so that the profiteering people are out of the equation and we have efficiently financed high quality care for, the, for every American patient. And organized medicine will go from its Neanderthal, Neanderthal days back then, gradually will become part of the solution. We're, they're still not there yet. Sorry They're still say. not there yet, huh? But there is a shift happening. There um, is a shift happening, yes. So you mentioned a group that is uh, Physicians for uh, Single Payer. What is that organization? Are, are they doing lobbying work on behalf of the, of the cause, or what's their story? The Physicians for a National Health Program is a nonprofit organization. 
which has been in uh, incorporated for gee, 35 some odd years now. Oh wow, okay. And and has been it sees itself as a research and education kind of foundation where and and so they educate physicians and nurses and everybody who's willing to listen. I bet I was an active member of it for many years. In fact, I served on the national board of directors for a term. Uh, it's a lovely organization, and a lot of the information that we have that's been published in the peer-reviewed literature that proves that the American health insurance business model is very wasteful comes from PNHP and from uh, people active in it with an academic interest who do health policy uh, study work. Uh, so I, I highly, I you know, I highly acclaim them. But being a nonprofit, they can't choose political sides. They can't be right. politically active. They have to stand on the sideline where politics happens. Again, this is a reason why I have formed the American Health Security Project. We have to take sides. We have to pick some political fights and we have to win them. And you do that in the United States with political money, with political yeah. donations. PNHP and all the, all the similar organizations like it, which are nonprofit, can't get in that fight. It's not what they do. It's not their mission. We need now something that actually will engage in this fight mm -hmm. and, and actually hold people accountable uh, with political speech, bought and paid for with political money on the airwaves and on social media and basically say to the people who are in the California legislature, you claim that you're, you care about people and patients. Well, doggone it, why didn't you do X? Mm -hmm. Why not Y? We need right. to call them out. We need yeah. people to see the electorate in general to see that it isn't the way that they want to paint it. It isn't that way at all. Uh, and there are yeah. alternatives, things that we could do. And we also need to be able with good paid for political speech, pay for the ballot initiative campaigns that are going to be incredibly expensive because the yeah. medical industry, oh, they really are. Yeah. We'll spend millions and millions to defeat every one of them. Yeah. Well, we got to do millions. it. We got to do, do it. So you're going to be starting to take donations from individuals for this uh, soon. The, um, the process is that we feel like we need to have a pledged amount, meaning no, no actual donation, but a pledge to donate okay. for enough to cover one year's operating expenses. And once we've reached that amount of pledges, and we have already opened the website to pledges, you can go on and make the pledge. Okay. After we reach the amount that we believe is necessary for one year's operating expenses, we will file the documents with the FEC and open officially open for business. And then we'll seek all of the, of the donors that we can individually, no, no corporate money, individually um, at, at whatever level people can, to, can donate to try to build the war chest that we need and start playing a role in um, making oh, the public oh, aware. Okay. First of all, being able to help the public identify their, yeah. that, that feeling of health and health insecurity that everybody in the United States has. Republicans, Democrats, you know, independents, everybody has it. And we need to no, help you're them right, you're right. what it feels like, why they're feeling that way, and that it's completely unnecessary because we're already taxing ourselves enough. The, the solution's obvious. We can do <laughs> it's this. It's so obvious. It's so we obvious. We can do this. That's what we need to do. That's what, that's what the, the project is intended to do. Okay. So yeah, that's great. And, you know, and honestly, if you look at the polling, people like to say that only the left supports this idea of single payer. And it's absolutely fundamentally not true. If you look at where, where the voters are, yeah, the I'm vast a majority of, yeah, the vast majority of Americans want single payer. It's not so, uh, but again, they say these things because they're trying to steer the conversation a certain way to get the, the bill defeated. 
And I do think, um, you know, part of why we need to see these votes start coming to the floors of our assemblies, our senates, et cetera, is because we need to see who is voting. No, like this is valuable information at this point. If uh, if a elected official is giving you lip service saying, I support single payer. Yes, of course I do. Blah, blah, blah. But then they're not willing to go to the floor and vote yes on a bill for it. There's a problem there. But without that information, it's really hard to know who to target with either a primary race or a lobbying campaign of some sort. It's it's hard right. to know. So which is why I think it's so disappointing uh, that Ash Kalra pulled that bill, because that information would have been very valuable to the activists working for single payer in the state. So unfortunate. So are you going to at some point, do you guys think endorse um, primary contenders in, in areas where we have? Um, you know, assembly people or candidate endorsement. Candidate endorsement is a low priority. For okay, so mainly the ba- ballot initiatives is the goal. Ballot initiatives and the general conversation out there helping people get past all the negative. Ah, so just basic education people. on seeing. Okay, that's yes. great. We that have got sense. to get out there and basically say so and so. This senator just said X. That's wrong. Yeah. He's 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 playing you. And yeah, this playing. is what you need to realize is wrong with that. We need to actually take them on uh, and say, you know, don't buy this anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you know what these commercials look like. Yeah, the 100%. person they're trying to vilify is always portrayed in gray and black. Well, we yeah. need to do that. We need to we, do that to right. these people. We need <laughs> right. to kick some fanny and take some names. That's It'll what we got to do. I think it needs to be like those tough on crime commercials that we saw in the 80s. Except that it's, it's, you know, taken to task these guys 100%. I think that could be effective. And I think the more people learn about single payer, and they realize what it is, they're like, well, yeah, that sounds great. Like, it's not that scary thing that they told it what they've been, you know, told it was for years. And really, the health insurance lobby has hijacked the terminology on it for so many years, you know, then and I mean, you know, you hear them making these comparisons to the Cold War, which is just ridiculous, but they do it because it's effective, right? So I've been at uh, it I've been at this for 30 years. They don't yeah. have anything new to say. I've heard no. it. it's all coming out the same. They don't have anything new to say. So we're we're okay. We're okay. Because so. they haven't got anything to say anymore. <laughs> Exactly. So I think that's a solid plan because really just bringing that to the forefront of the conversation would be helpful. And, and, and in turn, you sort of start this tidal wave of pressure that's going to come from the population of voters. And at some point, the uh, politicians have to respond. They can't keep ignoring. Right. Yeah, I, I don't don't believe in anybody, any politician being somebody sacred that we shouldn't. Have, we oh, should I'm not. with you on that. <laughs> We, and, you know, there are some people who I like and some people who I don't like, but my likes and dislikes have nothing to do with this. This mm-hmm. is hardball business and that's all it is. It's right. all pol- politics and it's all about a heavy political lift. And I don't care whose career gets dashed in the meantime. Really don't. Yeah. I can care less about it. Bernie so, Sanders is a great guy. I, you yeah. know, I'm a Republican. I would have voted for him if you were on the ballot. Yeah. Simply because of his single payer stance. Same if, here, yeah. If we, if we have to, if we have to, you know, vote him out of office to get single payer, then okay, that's what we're going to do. Right, right, and you know, it's unfortunate because that was the other thing about Bernie Sanders that made him the no-brainer candidate, as far as, as I was concerned, because he did have support from um, vast support from a wide audience. Right, it wasn't just Democrats mm-hmm. that supported Bernie, and they supported him because of things like uh, he. I think he really would have gone into the presidential uh, office and 
campaigned hard for it, used it as a bully pulpit, tried to force the vote. I mean, I think he would have done all of those things, whether he would have been successful or not, different conversation. But at least yeah. we would have had the fight on a, on a federal level. Well, you know? I, I have no doubt that the presidency of Bernie Sanders would have been quite different from the one that we're <laughs> Yeah, 100%. No doubt about that. I mean, having said that, I'm happy that the incumbent president is there instead of his predecessor. I, I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah, that. no, I'm with you on that, too. Like, I feel like yeah. we're always in a battle of lesser evils at this point with the American oh, mass public really so not true, winning. Isn't yeah, isn't it's it unfortunate. Time? Oh, it's so ugly. I, I'm old enough to remember a time when people actually didn't fear that when the other party took office, that somehow the country was going to co- totally go <laughs> know, right? apart. You know, we, we actually had kind of some love and trust and, yeah. and interest in each other. That's gone, uh, I, as I said, I was raised in I was raised in a conservative environment. I was raised in Arizona. Barry Goldwater was the leading political light right, right. in Arizona at the time. That's where I learned my conservative politics. But he was the he was best of friends with John F. Kennedy. Right, if right. Kennedy had not been assassinated, the nineteen sixty-four presidential campaign, they'd already made plans. They were gonna tour the country together, arm in arm, and talk the issues. That yeah. that was actually possible. In the 60s. Yeah, it was so, possible back then, JK, not now. <laughs> JK was assassinated, and Lyndon Johnson decided to take the no, you know, take no prisoners approach was better, and produced that. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you remember this, but, but that p- political commercial that made it look like Barry Goldwater was going to set off nuclear bombs all over. Oh, yeah, that was that was the one with the little girl with the flower where she was pulling off right. the petals of right. it might. Right. And it worked. Yeah, okay. It won the election in a landslide, but um, it also began the process of ruining the, you know, the sort of amity that was between yeah. people all over the country. And whatever was left of that, Nixon totally shredded. Yeah, he sh- and then Reagan, <laughs> Reagan, Reagan shredded it more. The government was a terrible thing. That's not a conservative principle. That's not no. A oh God. So I don't think we've had a good president since JFK. Honestly, like yeah, they've all. Yeah. It's, in my it's, lifetime, well, there's. I would say that I would say that President Ford was. Uh, oh, right. Okay. Um, but whatever. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you there. So let let me ask you this: If folks want to buy your book, it's called "The Purple World: Healing the Harm in American Healthcare." Where is the best place for them to go to buy that? It's on all the online uh, book sales places. Bar- Barnes and Noble has it online. Okay. Um, Amazon got it online. Uh, so that's that's where you can find it. Okay. And what is your Twitter handle if folks want to follow you? At Dr. Joe Q. Jarvis. All right. Thanks for do- uh, joining us this week. Really informative conversation. Um, and I look forward to hearing more about your group that you're setting up. Thank you very much for inviting me. Enjoyed it. <laughs>